Well, today we come to the end of the book of Ruth. What a wonderful book it is. So far we've been introduced to Ruth, a Moabite woman who accompanied Naomi when she returned from Moab back to the land of Israel. How Ruth began to glean in the fields of a man named Boaz, who, as it turns out, was a relative of Naomi's late husband. Boaz became very impressed with Ruth and offered her much help. And that led Ruth to carry out to carry out Naomi's plan for Ruth to propose marriage to Boaz. Since, according to Old Testament law, she had a right to ask for her husband's relative to marry her in order to provide an heir. Boaz was very agreeable to this, but he said that there was one relative even closer than he was, who was before him in line to be Ruth's redeemer, and therefore has the right of first refusal. So Boaz assures Ruth that he will speak to this man and try to get him to relinquish his right so that Boaz can indeed marry Ruth. And that's where we left the story at the end of chapter 3 and where we pick it up at the beginning of chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took, that is, Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And then Boaz said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And the man said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, Now the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech 
and that and all that belonged to Shilion and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you worthily, may you act worthily in, in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood came, gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, which is connected to the expression, the son, a son has been born to Naomi. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Abinadab, Abinadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And that is the end of the book of Ruth. Now, um, there are actually a couple of things of explanation that I was going to go into to, you know, elucidate the uh, meaning of this and to give perspective. But I'm going to skip those to make sure that we have time for all four of the lessons, the four final lessons that I'd like to point out this morning from the book of Ruth. So you can read those in the notes, if you'd like, which is put on the uh, website each Sunday morning before church. Um, you can read those later. Don't read them now, please. <laughs> okay, so the first of these four lessons is that Ruth has a lot to teach us about how to invest wisely. Unlike most immigrants, you see, when Ruth left her homeland, she was actually expecting life to be worse and not better in Israel. Think about what staying in Moab would have meant for Ruth. It's where she was comfortable. It's where she was known. It's where she had family. It's where she had potential suitors, prospects for another husband. 
It's where she has familiarity. It's where she has safety. But Ruth saw how valuable the treasure was. And the treasure has a capital T. And she was willing, and she willingly therefore sold everything that she had in order to obtain this treasure. And now, as a result, she's got a book of the Bible written about the story of her faith. And think about all of the benefits that she received by going to Israel with Naomi. She found a husband and a rich one at that. She chooses to give up on the idea of getting married. And as a result, God gives her a wonderful godly husband. It's not the first time or the last time that happened. She took care of her mother-in-law, Naomi, who, who knows what would have happened if Ruth hadn't stepped in to take care of her. She became part of the people of God. She gave birth to the grandfather of King David, from whom the Messiah himself descended. But there's one thing even greater than all these. The greatest treasure Ruth received as a result of her choice was the greatest treasure anyone can receive. God. And look how God rewards Ruth. Does God not reward those who seek him? Two weeks ago I read Luke chapter 18 verses 29 and 30. There is no one who has left house or wives or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time, in this age, that is this life, and in the age to come, eternal life. Which applies beautifully to the story of Ruth. And like Ruth, we are asked to give up a lot. But he always compensates us with more, more than he asks us to give up. In this verse, it's a hundred times more, many times. It says many times, and then in the parallel passage, it says a hundred times. In the end, the reward of eternal life, of course, is so far greater than the, what he's asked us to give up that Romans 8, 18 tells us it's not worthy to be compared. You can't put a number on it. When faced with this, thousands make a wretched choice. Choosing safety and security and earthly comfort instead of choosing God. But Ruth was an example of a woman who chose God and she was made rich as a result of it. The second lesson I'd like to draw out is that ordinary people can have an extraordinary impact by faithfully doing ordinary things. What a great lesson we see in this story of Ruth. Over 3,000 years ago, a young woman made the decision to emigrate to another country. 
And we are still today delightfully affected by the choice that she made. If we could have done a DNA test on Jesus, it would have shown that some of his, that he had some Moabite blood in him from Ruth. How did Ruth change the world? How did she have such a powerful influence? And this is the amazing thing. She did it by loving her mother-in-law. She didn't have a grand scheme or lay out a plan to become a famous or influential person. She simply made choices for God each step of the way. She chose God's people to be her people. She chose God to be her God. She chose to get out of, to go out of her way to take care of her mother-in-law, Naomi. She chose to work hard in the fields. She chose to follow Naomi's guidance with regard to Boaz. So how are we going to change the world? Well, we don't have to run for office. We don't have to be the CEO of a giant corporation. There is world-changing power in the simple life lived for God. There's world-changing power in something as humble as being a blessing to your mother-in-law. You know, this amazing statement in Ruth 4.15 that the woman said of, of Naomi, when they said, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons. Better than seven sons. Sons is what all mothers longed for in Israel. And seven was the number of perfection or completeness. This is like the ultimate family. Have seven sons. But Ruth, the daughter-in-law, was better than seven sons. And that's amazing in light of the fact that not having sons is the very issue in the story for Ruth, for Naomi. But she had a daughter-in-law. But it turns out that daughter-in-law was better than seven sons. We usually don't think of being a good daughter-in-law as worthy of being called a hero. But in God's economy, these modest little acts of faithfulness shine brightly in his eyes. And of course, I'm not talking here about that everybody should go out and try to, to, be, to put forth heroic effort to love their mother-in-law. Mothers-in-law are wonderful to love. But the point is, these small acts, humble, basic acts of love are powerful and are noticed by the living God. The third lesson that I'd like to draw out I begin with a question how was Boaz prepared to marry a Moabite woman now Moab 
was in the region of the Dead Sea. And the Moabites were the descendants of a man named Moab who was the son of Lot. Remember him? Who lived in Sodom, and Gomor- in Sodom, the city of Sodom. Moab was born of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. Genesis 19.37 Among the famous kings of Moab, Moab was Balak, famous for the story of Balaam, and Eglon in the story of the book of Judges. The Moabites were despised by the Israelites. So how was it then that Boaz was able to get past this prejudice and embrace Ruth as his beloved wife? Well, we might have an answer in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 where we're told that Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now we've got to be careful about genealogies in the Bible. They sometimes skip generations. We know this by comparing one Bible genealogy with another. And notice that sometimes this one is skipped generation that this one includes. So it's possible that, and even likely here, that a generation or two has been skipped because the timing doesn't work out very well from the story. But this apparently is the the Rahab that's famous from the story of Joshua and Jericho, who was a prostitute who sheltered two Israelite spies and was therefore spared when Jericho was destroyed. So even if Boaz, if uh, Rahab wasn't Boaz's mother, would have been his grandmother or perhaps great-grandmother. But it is very likely that um, Boaz grew up hearing the story of Rahab as sort of a hero in the family. Now in some ways the story of Rahab is parallel to the story of Ruth. It's also the story of a courageous woman who made a shocking choice to abandon her own people in order to identify herself with God and his people. And in doing that, that's why we assume that Boaz grew up hearing the story of of Rahab. And so, when he encountered Ruth, it's as if he saw Rahab in her and was immediately drawn to her. And thus, God prepared Boaz to receive Ruth and Israel, which itself caused Israel to receive Ruth, the Moabitess, such that they included her story in their very scriptures. Why do you think that the uh, Redeemer who is ahead of Boaz refused Boaz, refused Ruth? You know, the first one, he, 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 he wanted the field, but when he heard that 
Ruth was thrown in on the deal, he was no longer interested. Well, we don't know. Maybe he was already married and he didn't want to deal with that issue with his wife or whatever. Maybe it's financial reasons. But it is interesting that Boaz, when he's explaining the situation to this man, in trying to discourage him from accepting this offer, seems to emphasize that Ruth was a Moabitess. That probably had something to do with him turning down the offer. It might seem silly to us that Israelites would be prejudiced against Moabites. But isn't this pretty common in terms of human behavior? Isn't some of this in all of us? It's not just ignorance. There's something in our sinful nature which dis disdains them. We love ourselves without much problem. And we can usually have love for our own people, our own family, our own group, our own community, our own school. But those we perceive as them, we tend to look at with disregard with disrespect, with disdain. Jesus wasn't like this. That's one of the things that stood out about Jesus. He encountered the blind man in John 9. Everyone else just walked by him and ignored him. Jesus went to him and stopped in front of him and drew attention to him. The adulterous woman rejected by everyone else the garrison demoniac who drove everyone away in fear. The Roman centurion who wanted him to, who, uh, you know, Jesus wanted to go to his house. The tax collector, the lepers, all people that others were turning away from, and Jesus didn't. This rejection, this disdain towards the them wasn't in Jesus. We see, therefore, that it's a part of our sinful nature. At every turn, Jesus is receiving those who others want to reject and is alert to the plight of those around him in an in a amazing way. The fact is that we all are hardened and blinded to the plight of many people that are around us. And it's important for Christians to work at mortifying these natural impulses to disdain them and learn to welcome even those who are very different from us and to allow God to lead us through those that he has prepared to be more open as he prepared Boaz to be more open through his connection with Rahab. And then Boaz could lead others to welcome Ruth. So we need to be willing to be led or willing to lead in ways that we have been prepared. You know, we have our dear sister Susan. Others ought to follow us in being able to fully embrace people like Susan without being put off by her CP. We have Katie Wellington. 
We ought to lead others in being able to warmly embrace people like her. And now Benjamin has a heart for prisoners that far exceeds the rest of us. And we need to let God lead us through him in terms of our compassion and heart for prisoners. And I could go on and on and on. There are just so many ways that we need to have a heart for people like Jesus did and sometimes and be willing to listen to others that God has put that on their hearts. In the end, and here's the last and final lesson. In the end, the story of Ruth is mainly a story about God. It shows us what happens when people put their trust in him, even in the darkest days of life. Remember how bitter Naomi's life was. She had a husband and two sons, a place among God's people and a piece of the promised land. But all this did her little little good if there was no food to eat. And so when the famine hit, they all moved to the land of Moab where there was food. But when they were in Moab, the very thing they were going there to escape from, the danger of dying, is the thing that happened. Her husband died. Her sons died. Not only were they left without their husbands, the three, these three women, but they had no life insurance. There was no welfare. They were left to fend for themselves in a society where men were the providers and being a widow was synonymous with being in poverty. Naomi came back so broken, so humiliated, that her old friends, even after an absence of only 10 years, her old friends hardly recognized her. And yet, and yet, the story of Naomi was not over. She thought it was over. She thought she'd reached the final chapter, and it was a dark one. But little did she know that things were not only about to improve, they were about to improve so much that the happy ending would far surpass the intensity of her dark days. One verse that summarizes Ruth well is what the women say at the end, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Giving praise to God for what he did for Naomi, even though she wasn't expecting it. And when, from the end of the story, we look back at all of her tragedies and bitternesses at the beginning of the story, they look very different. We see the powerful truth of the words of William Cooper in his great poem turned into a hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Listen to this. You fearful saints... Fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break 
and blessings on your head. And that's exactly what happened to Naomi. The clouds look so bleak, so dark, so foreboding. And yet they broke in blessings upon her head. Naomi's gloom was turned into glory. And so will ours be. As Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Just as God provided a redeemer for Ruth, so he has provided a redeemer for us as well. And when the story was so bleak that even the sun hid its face, God raised the redeemer from the dead. And he is still in the business of raising from the dead and turning mourning into dancing. But in order for your mourning to be turned into dancing, you have to experience the mourning. The dancing doesn't come without the mourning. And you have to wait for the dancing. Always longer than you'd like. This life isn't all about dancing. It's about having your mourning turned to dancing. And this is why believers do not grieve as those who have no hope. And how much more this is so now that Jesus died and rose again, showing us that the grief of dying is on the path to true living. In the story of Ruth, God calls us to put our faith in him and not be overwhelmed by the bitterness, by the discouragement, by the darkness of our struggles and our troubles. In many ways, Ruth's story reminds me of the story of the Syrophoenician woman who comes to Jesus, the descendant of Ruth, in Matthew 15, 21 to 28. Jesus is focused on his ministry to the Jews, and he tells her that. But she won't take no for an answer. And in so doing, she demonstrates faith greater than her Jewish peers. And the story ends with Jesus, who has spent... who Most of the Gospels are filled with Jesus marveling at how small their faith is of all of his followers and his disciples. And yet, in this story, he marvels at the greatness of this woman's faith. It's as if he looked at her and he saw his ancestor, Ruth. Before we come to the table this morning, let us uh, sing Hymn number 307, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. Please stand. O Lord our God, we know that man has known no greater bleakness, no greater gloom than having fallen into sin, 
and unable to pull oneself out of its grip and not even wanting to. We thank you, dear Lord, that you look down in pity upon us as we wallowed in our wickedness and you intervened in our despair, in our hopelessness. We were children of wrath, and yet, O oh Lord, you called us forth, and you sent your Son to bear the penalty for us upon the cross, that you might justly forgive us of our sins. And we thank you, dear Lord, for quickening us, for making our hearts go from death to life, making us see Jesus when we were blind. And now we pray that as we come to the table where he told us to remember him, and celebrate what he has done. We pray that you would be at work in us, that our hearts would repudiate our own wickedness and our own worldliness. And dear Lord, that we might cling to you, that our eyes might be open to your grace and glory. We pray all this in the precious name.